This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. Back in 2020, otherwise known as the year that shall not be named, growing loofah became this sort of garden craze. It was the year of the loofah. I have no idea how it got started, but it seemed like everywhere I looked on social media gardening accounts, they were talking about growing loofah. Now, if you didn't jump onto the loofah bandwagon back then, or if you've not been successful yet in your loofah growing adventures, you are certainly not alone. Loofah needs a really long, warm growing season, and it seems that where you are gardening also affects when and how you harvest your loofah. It can be a little persnickety, and I've found that no two regions seem to grow and mature their loofah in the same manner. It took two years for us to get a successful harvest from our plants, but I have loved having them in my house now. So what is loofah, and why should you even bother? As my husband discovered back in 2018, loofah is the sponge you can grow yourself for all kinds of household uses. But traditionally, loofah is so much more than that, and it can be a great addition to your garden for lots of reasons. So let's dig into how to grow loofah with some special tips on growing in areas with shorter growing seasons and why I'm not growing loofah this year. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So back in 2018, my husband and I were at the Farmer Veteran Coalition annual conference, and we got the chance to talk with other veterans in agriculture from across the U.S. One such veteran mentioned that she had a loofah farm down in Texas. Well, my husband was blown away with this because he didn't realize, like most people, that loofah is something that you grow on land. It's not something that you harvest from the sea or that you grow in water. And he became fascinated with this idea, and he really decided at that point that we needed to grow loofah. At first, it was a thought of, oh, we're just going to do that for ourselves. You know, let's just see if we can do it. But then he started thinking about all of the vendors at his farmer's markets that make and sell their own soap. And he thought it would be the perfect accompaniment to their products. So that's when we jumped on the loofah bandwagon. 
The first year we grew it, that, that next spring in 2019, I treated it just like I do the rest of my curcubits. I started it indoors and it sprouted pretty readily. I hardened it off outside the same way I do with my cucumbers and my squashes. And then I transplanted it and I just sort of let it do its thing. My husband did build me um, some nice, big, strong trellises because we had read that the vines do get very long. And I actually underestimated how huge the vines were. This trellis seemed like it was perfectly sturdy, but these vines were no joke, 30 feet long, and they went up and over and down the other side. And at one point during the season, the entire trellis actually toppled over and everything came crashing down to the ground. Now, the the loofah plant was not phased by this. It actually continued to grow and do its thing. Um, but one of the other things that I underestimated was how long it would take for the plant to finally flower and then for those fruits to finally do their thing. I did not give it enough time in our growing season to actually get to the point where we had any usable fruits. Um, they just got into the ground too late. I got them started too late. We had lots of flowers finally and we did have tiny little fruits all over. Um, um, but then we had our first frost and it was a done deal over. Not able to save them from the frost. And so we had no harvest our first year. So the second year, I thought better of it and I got an earlier start indoors. We had bigger transplant at that point. So as soon as it was warm enough, uh, they were definitely more mature and I was able to get them into the ground. They did suffer a little bit of transplant shock, which seems to be a problem with loofah. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, but I was very pleasantly surprised. I had blooms earlier. They were loaded with fruits. And even though we had reinforced that trellis and put it back up again, and yes, I did grow them in the same spot the second year, which I probably shouldn't have done, but um, it was the best place to do it because of that trellis. Uh, we had high winds. And at that point, uh, the vines were pretty loaded with fruits, probably too many fruits, and that whole trellis came toppling down again. This time it was later in the season and the plants that we had or the, the fruits that were on the vine um, were getting pretty close to maturity at that point. So we covered the loofah to protect them from the frost um, while they were still on the ground <laughs> and tried to get them to grow as long as we possibly could before harvesting them. And as soon as we were going to have our, that first real freeze, uh, then we harvested everything we had. We managed that time to get several large ones and a few smaller ones. Contrary to a lot of the images that you see online, they did not dry out completely while they were on the vine. We just don't have a long enough season for them to be able to do that. Now, if you are in a more southern region, in a warmer region, then yeah, absolutely, yours will probably stay on the, the vine long enough to dry out and, and be harvested that way. Ours certainly couldn't, so we had to bring them inside and let them dry indoors. Some of them made it, some of them didn't, um, but I had a couple of large ones and three fairly small ones. And you know what? I'm still using them. So I would say that that was a successful harvest. So I want to pass on what I learned from that and what I have learned since then to hopefully help you get um, a good loofah harvest too. So if you're new here this season and you haven't gone back to listen to any of the crop-specific episodes from last season, be ready for a flood of information on loofah. <laughs> so I go through 
the basics, like the scientific name and the plant family, um, where the plant originated from. We talk about ethnobotanical significance of the crop, its nutrient content, and then we'll get into how to cultivate it and maybe what pests and diseases it faces and how to harvest and store the crop. It seems like a lot, but I think having the background information on a plant that you intend to grow helps you determine how best to grow it in your particular area. If you know something originated in the Mediterranean, for example, and you live along the same line of latitude as that region, or your growing conditions are similar, you may have an easier time growing that crop than someone who is much further north or south. And those growers in other regions will better be able to make adjustments as necessary. That's just sort of one example. So that's the reason why I try to give you as much information as possible um, about what you're intending to grow. So. All that being said, let's dig into Lufa, which I am spelling L-U-F-F-A, but there's actually um, some argument over what the proper way to spell it is. I choose L-U-F-F-A because it's part of uh, the name of the genus, and so I just stick with that, but you'll also see it spelled L-O-O-F-A-H, um, L-O-O-F-A, all kinds of different ways, and I guess they're all used interchangeably, so... Um, let's start with the basics. Lufa is a genus of tropical and subtropical vines that are in the Curcubitaceae family. That is the cucumbers and the squashes and the melons. Um, the species that are most commonly grown in the garden are um, Lufa acutangula, which is the angled or ridged Lufa, and Lufa aegyptiaca, or Lufa cylindrica, which is a smooth Lufa or Egyptian Lufa. Um, they also sometimes call it dish rag gourd. Um, and then there's also Lufa operculata, which is a wild Lufa, or they also call it a sponge cucumber. That one you don't really see cultivated as frequently. It originated, most scientists believe anyway, that it originated in Asia or Africa and it started being cultivated in India. They've done carbon dating on some Lufa gourd that was brought over to North America and shown that it was over 9,000 years old. So early European settlers in North America grew Lufa as one of the first domesticated crops in the New World. The cultural significance and ethnobotanical uses. So as a reminder, ethnobotany is the study of a region plants and their practical uses through the traditional knowledge of a local culture and its people. I give this information as historical and anthropological resource. I also um, offer it up as just good information to have, but I remind you to never ingest the parts of any plant without being absolutely positive of its effects on the human body. That being said, Lufagord has been used for food and juice for the entire time that it's been cultivated. Um, usually when they're small and green, they are used similarly to a very young squash or cucumber. It goes by many, many different names in different countries, many of which I cannot pronounce. And the name often depends on whether you are using the ridged lufa or the smooth version. It's a popular vegetable used in many dishes, and not just the, the fruit, but the flowers too. And the seeds are often roasted and eaten as a snack. Um, the leaves are also harvested when young and cooked as a tender green, but I've read that the older ones tend to be tough and bitter. And then, of course, when the loofah is dried, you peel it and you wash it. It's used for sponges. You can use it in bathing. You can use it for cleaning, as well as a myriad of other things. The loofah has been used for mattresses, as insulation, used for padding in hats and helmets, 
Um, you can make decorations out of them, ornaments, and it's been used as water filters. In fact, during World War II, the skeleton of the dried loofah was used as diesel engine oil filters and as steam engine filters. And then in certain areas, it's also grown as a living, like, sunshade because it's got that long, thick growth habit of the vine. It's still used in many parts of the world for medicinal purposes, including healing extracts um, as an astringent, a painkiller, to control bleeding, to promote healing, improve circulation. Its essential nutrients are believed to help reduce arthritis, treat anemia, improve skin health, prevent diabetes, and improve brain function. So since we're talking about eating our loofah, there is a nutritional value to it. One serving of young loofah gourd um, is 89 grams or about a half a cup of one inch slices. That contains 48 calories. 12 grams of carbs, 0.6 grams of protein, and 0.3 grams of fat. The essential nutrients include vitamin A, vitamin B, manganese, and potassium. So whether you plan to eat your loofah or you plan to use it as a scrubber or a combination of both, um, it's important to remember that loofahs are a part of the curcubit family. So they're going to grow um, similarly to those other warm weather crops. Your cucumbers, winter squashes, like with those same long vines, have the same type of a growth habit. They need a long, warm growing season. In order to get your loofah to maturity, you're going to need between 180 and 200 frost-free days. You know, some packages will say, oh, it takes 90 days, it takes 150 days. Yes, but not to get them to the size that you would need them to be able to, to use as a sponge. So the warmer, the better. Cold temperatures will slow their growth. And just remember that these vines can get to be as long as 30 feet. So make sure that you have plenty of space. So the part of the loofah that you're used to seeing is actually the inside fibers of the fruit. So you've got the green skin on the outside, and then you've got the skeleton in the inside. And that's the loofah sponge. Um, or the scrubby. The immature loofahs, when they're smaller, they look pretty much like a little cucumber or a little zucchini. Mature loofahs will turn brown on the outside when they're drying, and they really start to get very, very light. So this is a really good way to see how mature your loofahs are if you have a long enough season, um, is to just kind of lift them a little bit while they're growing, and you'll see they feel very dense. And then as they got, get to maturity and they start to dry out, you will feel them getting lighter and lighter. Again, if you're in a short season like I am, um, you're more than likely going to be picking these while they are still green. You just try to leave them on as long as you possibly can, and then you can harvest them at that point. So cultivating loofah. If you're in a cooler zone, start your loofah seeds early, about six to eight weeks before your last frost date. Um, you can soak the seeds in water for 12 to 24 hours prior to planting. That will help with the germination. It helps break down that seed coating. And if you can germinate your seeds on a heating pad, that will help. Um, I will put a link in the show notes to the episode on sprouting your warm season plants um, taught where I talk about using the heating pads for this, but you know, since since Lufa really does like the warmth, you're gonna have a little bit more success if you can use a heat pad. No harm, no foul if you don't have one, but it will improve your chances. 
I tend to plant my loofah in a large enough container to where I will not have to pot it up prior to putting it out in the ground. Um, this to me reduces a little bit of the risk of transplant shock, which loofah plants are prone to. Some people prefer to, you know, plant them in the smaller containers and then as soon as the first true set of leaves forms, then they transplant them into pots that decompose like the peat pots or the coir pots so that they're only transplanting or only disturbing those roots once or use newspaper pots or start them in soil blocks, that sort of thing. I just prefer to use the large containers and then I can pop the whole thing out and drop it into the ground with very little chance of disturbing the roots. It's worked for me. You want to transplant them out once your soil is very warm and that weather has settled consistently hitting, you know, 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 21 Celsius um, during the day. Then you can go ahead and put them into their final location. For us, West Central Missouri, it could be as late as the end of May before I plant them, maybe even the first week of June. Um, the plants are really good size by then. Just make sure that you harden them off and try not to disturb the root system at all when you plant them. You're still likely going to see some sort of transplant shock, but you know, the, the less you disturb them, the, the better you are. For those of you that live in warmer climates, you can absolutely direct sow your seeds as soon as the soil has warmed up, so long as you're in an area where you know that you have at least four or five months before your weather starts to cool again. This is mostly you guys that live in zones eight or warmer. Regardless of your zone, uh, the garden location should have a soil pH of around 6.0 to 6.5, so just slightly acidic and in full sun. Minimum of six hours, but eight hours or more would be better. Um, Lufa can grow in just about any soil type that has a good amount of soil organic matter and drains well. So if you've got very clay or very sandy soil, you may want to amend with compost for best results. They can be grown in raised beds. And as a matter of fact, that is what we've grown ours in. That trellis that I talked about was attached to two small raised beds on either side. I didn't do a whole lot of anything fancy to those raised beds. It was just the compost that I had thrown out there the previous year. You know, just make sure you've got a very large, very sturdy trellis at the ready, or just be prepared for 30-foot fines that are going to crawl across the ground and cover your entire area. You probably prefer to do it on a trellis because soil contact with the fruit can actually lead to fruit rot. It can cause uh, the fruit to be sort of discolored, or it can cause the, gour the gourd to curve and become misshapen while it's growing. So trellis is definitely preferred. So keep your loofah well watered. Um, it definitely is a little bit of a water hog. It prefers to, to stay fairly consistently moist. With that being said, we don't irrigate out here very frequently. Um, even in our raised beds, we're not doing a whole lot in the way of irrigation. So I actually didn't water ours but a handful of times, and that was during the hottest part of the season. That might account for how slowly mine was growing, but, you know, honestly, you get that transplant shock, 
and then they just kind of sit there for a while and you kind of worry that, uh-oh, you know, it's it's well, it's not going to do anything and you wait and you wait and you wait and then suddenly the darn thing just takes off and it, it just it just went crazy. So be patient. Let it get over that transplant shock. Make sure if there's any chance of cold weather, you cover it. A few days of cold weather will absolutely stop a loofah from growing and it could take several weeks before they kind of get over the shock and continue to grow. So um, they really don't have any special fertilizer requirements. So, you know, a few inches of compost over those beds in the fall, you know, was enough for ours to grow. If you, if you regularly feed the rest of your garden and you want to feed them that the same way, that's fine. It's, it's not going to hurt anything. Uh, but they just don't seem to be super demanding when it comes to very specific requirements. Like all squash and cucumbers, loofah have both male and female flowers. So, once your loofah starts flowering, don't worry if all you see is male flowers. The female flowers will generally come afterwards. We had a ton of pollinators attracted to this thing. And surprisingly, it was a lot of wasps. Um, we had some native wasps that were here that act as really good pollinators, and they were just super attracted to this thing. So I don't know if it was just my area or just the pollinators we happen to have, but that might be something to keep in mind if if wasps are a problem in your area, because I, number one, am deathly allergic to wasps, and so I had to be very careful when I was walking near the loofah because they were always all over that thing. The other thing that I also noticed was when I had the seedlings hardening off in and out of my greenhouse, they were very attractive to ants. I had a, a slew of ants that came in and they were just all over this thing. Uh, they weren't on anything else in my greenhouse. It was just the loofah. So I don't know if there's if it's something that ants are attracted to or if it just happened to be that way, but that might be something else to keep in mind. Once the flowers are pollinated, you will start to see tiny little fruits begin to develop and they look to me like little gherkin pickles. They're adorable. So uh, at this stage, you know, once they hit about that two-inch stage is when you can start harvesting them to eat if that's what you uh, want to do. Otherwise, just let them continue to grow to fully develop into those much larger fruits. Like I said, you can do a combination of this. You can choose the few that you want to keep and let them keep growing to their full size and then just be picking the smaller ones as they develop to be your food. In any case, no matter how you're doing it, about two months before your first fall frost date, you want to start pinching off all the new flowers that develop on the vine. This is something we've talked about with other crops, especially if you are in shorter season areas like tomatoes where you're getting close to the end of the season and you want the plant to direct all its remaining energy into growing those fruits that are already on the vine. So we're doing the same thing with the loofah. Two months before your first fall frost, start pinching them back and continue to do that for the rest of the season. Any tiny new loofahs aren't going to have a chance of ever getting big enough to harvest as a dried loofah anyway. So either pinch them off completely or pinch them when the little fruits get to be about, you know, two inches um, and continue to eat them as that fresh harvest. By the end of the growing season, the full-sized ones could be two foot long or even longer. So again, think about how heavy that might be and make sure that you have a trellis that can uh, stand up to all that weight. Now, can you grow loofah in containers? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you need a large container, a 20 to 30 gallon pot or a grow bag, um, something that is about 20 to 24 inches across the top in diameter. And the reason for this is because it is a thirsty plant and anytime you're growing in containers, you're having to water more frequently anyway. And so the more soil that you have, if you can soak it really well, it just means less frequently that you're going to have to water. And it also would hold enough soil to provide enough nutrients through this very, very long growing season of this very, very large plant. So just grow one plant per bag. And again, be sure to have a trellis of some sort. Um, I mentioned before that people will grow these to provide shade. This is often used in urban environments in India and other places as a sunscreen on their porches or their balconies. Just give it something to grow up and it will totally provide shade. I've actually considered growing them along the fence to my chicken coop as a sunscreen in the summer for the birds. And the bonus to that would be, well, they could go ahead and they could pick off the flowers and eat the baby fruits if they wanted to. And anything on the outside of the fence, I would get to keep. So that's still something that I plan on doing eventually. I once heard someone say, a podcast is like a garden. The gardener puts in the effort, but everybody benefits. I think that's pretty accurate. This podcast is a labor of love, and I hope that every one of you is reaping the benefits. If you get lots of great information from this podcast and would like to support it monetarily, you can do that by becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month over on Patreon. I'd like to thank my patrons for supporting this and every episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. And if you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething. The link is in the show notes. So what pests and diseases does Lufa face? Uh, really, anything that affects other plants in the curcubit family can also impact Lufa plants. But in my experience, these plants seem to be easier able to handle these pests um, and these diseases and not affect the harvest. That was my own experience. Downy mildew, powdery mildew, alternary leaf blights, and angular leaf spots can all affect Lufa. But again, Again, it doesn't seem like the loofah is really affected by it. I personally saw powdery mildew on the lower leaves of our loofah vines, but it did not seem to affect the overall health and production of the plant. The same thing holds true for pests. These can include cucumber beetles, squash vine borers, squash bugs, and spider mites. Um, I also saw evidence of cucumber beetles on our loofah and watched the lower leaves really be affected, some of them yellowing and dying off, but again, the overall health of the plant was not affected. So yes, do you want to keep an eye out for these, these pests and these diseases? Absolutely. If you can prevent them, great, you're even better off. But it, like I said, the loofah seems to be a little bit more tolerant um, of these things and not fully affected to where you won't get a harvest. Speaking of harvest, by um, the late fall, you should finally start having some decent sized loofahs. If you live in zone seven or above, um, maybe seven to eight-ish or above, um, your loofahs will probably dry on the vine and they will be brown and very, very light and very visibly dry by late October or before your first frost. For those of us in zone six and below, you're probably going to have to harvest them green and that is okay. 
Just make sure that you're paying attention to your weather forecasts so you can pick your loofah before they're hit by the frost. Again, even if they're green, go ahead and pull them. Technically, you're not supposed to pick them until they're dried, but it's very rare for us to get them to that stage. So you can still pick them and they'll be perfectly acceptable loofahs. They're just going to be a little bit harder to peel. So if you are in a place where it can stay on the vine uh, until completely mature and totally dry, great. Let them do that because that way they're getting the air circulation anyway and you have less chance of them rotting. Um, if you have to pick them green, then you need to bring them in and they're still going to feel lighter in your hand because they've already probably started to dry at this point. They're just not completely dry. So some of them, you know, they're not going to be mature enough. And when you peel them, they're going to kind of be fleshy and gooey in the inside. Um, but others will absolutely have developed properly. Once you bring the gourds inside and whether you're drying them inside or they're already dried when you bring them in, um, then you have to process them. So the best way to do this is to lay it on a table and then press down on it with the palms of your hands. You want to sort of crack the skin. Roll it and crack it. Roll it and crack it. You do this a bunch of different times so you really crack a bunch of that skin open. And then just press your thumb into the skin in one of those cracks and push down until you can get your thumb underneath the skin. This is going to separate the skin from the fibers of the sponge. Uh, sort of how you want to peel an orange, but maybe without, you know, digging your fingernails into it. You just want to push down with your thumb. Peel off all of that skin and then rinse the sponge under water um, to kind of clean out any of the, the wet, gooey parts of it. Um, you want it to be as clean as possible. While you're doing this, you're going to have a lot of the seeds falling out. So you may want to have something to collect those in. But do this a couple of times. Rinse, squish it, rinse it, squish it. And then when it feels and it looks fairly clean, then go ahead and sit it on the counter overnight to dry. Once it's dried, you can usually shake a lot more of those seeds out. Um, the more it's dried, the easier it's going to be for those seeds to come out. But they, they can be a little bit of a pain because there are a lot of them and they are all stuck in these centers and these nooks and these crannies. So, you know, you may miss one and you might end up sprouting it <laughs> when you're using the sponge. That's okay. But the drier, the better before you, you know, cut them to the size that you want them and decide to store them. If you want a brighter looking sponge, you can actually soak it in a solution of, um, I think it's one part bleach to 10 parts water. Um, rinse it with clean water and then let it dry again. That might brighten the look up a little bit. I'm not too concerned. Sometimes I had a couple that had little black spots on them from where they were pressed up against the trellis or where they had been bruised when they landed on the ground when the trellis fell. But again, you know, we're just using it as a sponge. So no harm, no foul there. And the ones that we harvested that one year we are still using. And so we actually technically haven't even needed to grow them again um, because they have lasted this long. The best thing is to make sure when you use them to dry them, just set them up on their end. They have a tendency to dry a little bit better that way. They have better, better airflow. Um, you absolutely can save the seeds from your loofah. Only the black seeds are the ones that you want to save. If they're, they're white or they're pale, um, they're not going to germinate. Once you've got all your black ones pulled out of there, then you want to sort of feel them. The, the ones that have been pollinated will be fat. 
So those are the ones that you want to save. Anything that's flat or kind of sunken uh, likely isn't going to germinate either. So hang on to those fat ones, dry them, store them up, and you will have plenty of loofah seeds for your next growing experience. I also have plenty of loofah seeds from the last time we grew them. And like I said, I still have plenty of dried loofah for using around the house, but they are super fun to grow. And I'm anxious to try that trick with using them to shade the chickens. But I am not growing loofah this year. And that has nothing to do with the fact that I don't want to. It has everything to do with the fact that we are not growing anything in the curcubit family on the farm this year. We have been battling squash bugs, squash vine borers, and cucumber beetles in a much more progressively worse manner every single year for about the last five years. And last season came down to me replanting or successively planting our zucchini plants four times just to be able to get a continuous harvest. Um, I had to successively plant our cucumbers three times, and that is just way too much effort for anybody to have to deal with. So in order to help try to break the pest cycle with our curcubits, we're not growing anything in that family this year. No cucumbers, no squashes, no melons, and unfortunately, that also means no loofah. But I will absolutely go back to growing loofah again next season uh, because I think it's something fun to grow. So if you try growing loofah this year, I would love to see pictures of what you're doing. If you have questions along the way that I or anybody else in our Facebook group can help you answer, I encourage you to jump in there. Uh, the Facebook group is the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends you can jump on Facebook and just post to the regular Facebook page or send me a message on Instagram, any of those things. I would love to see what you're doing and help answer any of your loofah growing questions. So um, give it a try and let me know how you grow your loofah. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.